Hey everybody, my name is Adam. I am a writer who loves spooky things. I live in Los Angeles, and I'm a Jew. My name is Jen, also live in Los Angeles, also a Jew, and also very into all things spooky. And my name is uh, Amit Tischler, and I'm also a Jew, and I'm into spooky things. So hey, I'll fit right in. So in case those of you listening at home can't tell, we have somebody else with us today. This is our very first interview. We figured it was, you know, something special to start the new year off. Jen and I were lucky enough to read the first issue of Eden Frost, which is a new graphic novel coming out, and it is dope as hell. Thank you so much. It's an issue-based series uh, that is coming out. First issue is already ready for pre-order from uh, Mad Cave Studios, but it's going to come out in both digital and print uh, November 22nd, 2023. Can you just very briefly tell us what that's about? Absolutely. So, in essence, Eden Frost is a historical fiction series, an adventure drama comic that tells the tale of uh, two young siblings, Alex and Yuli, that use the mystical power of a golem to survive the chaos of the Russian Civil War. It's uh, it's my debut original comic series with Mad Cave Studios. And, you know, at its core, it revolves around the topic of identity. So it's tense, it's epic, it's mysterious, and it really reimagines the classical Jewish folk myth of the golem. We're very grateful that you were able to fit us in here because you're about to jet off to New York to be speaking there as well about Eden Frost. Yeah, that's true. I basically have a panel that I have to be on with uh, a lot of other Mad Cave creators on Sunday at one uh, fifteen. It's a panel called Mad Cave Buzz, and I'm also going to have a signing on Friday the 13th. Ooh. <laughs> that, that's probably why they slotted me there which I'm really excited about because they're going to be, for the first time, selling early physical copies with variant covers. So it's a New York Comic Con exclusive variant cover by Mike Ruth, known for, you know, like doing a lot of monster-related covers like Swamp Thing and Hellboy and so on. So it's going to be awesome. We should probably learn a little bit more about you. Give us the full biography. Yeah. All right. So I'll, I'll try to make a truncated version of it that is as elegant as possible. Um, <laughs> oh, we, we don't do elegance here. <laughs> yeah. Oh, good, good. Whew. I'm originally from Tel Aviv. If you want to be a Jew, I feel like there is no more Jewiness than coming from biblical Middle Earth. I lived there the majority of my life. I only moved to the States around a little over a decade ago in, in 2010. And I started my career originally as a 2D animator for both TV shows and later on for software products like interactive educational simulations, uh, video games. My career kind of zigzagged a lot between the new media and the more traditional mediums that I started from. As an animator, I worked on like Animals for HBO, Mr. Pickles for Adult Swim, Rainbow Bright, cool. did some Adventure Time games for Nintendo DS. 
uh, most recently like a location-based um, license experience based on the Apple movie Luck. Right now I'm working on a promotional game for the new Saw movie that's coming out. So that's going to be something. That feels like a departure. It's a real mixed bag of stuff. And I originally started with comic books. Like, I think a lot of people in especially 2D animation, your starting point before you truly understand the medium of film or how or wrap your head around how that's done. Uh, I was very, very much a comic fan and I started drawing my own comics, you know, like in the back of the classroom to piss off teachers. Um, that worked out great. And my mom loved it. So, <laughs> so you know, that's kind of where I started from. And it ended up really going full circle in recent years when I started developing more properties and pitching them as a comic series. I view stories as something a lot more malleable because of my background. So I never think of something as it has to be a comic book. It has to be a video game. It has to be a TV show. I'm a big fan of like the philosophy of adaptation in general. What I really like about the current, let's say, independent comic book industry, um, even with a lot of the publishers involved, it is a lot more experimental than a lot of what you would get on, you know, television or video games simply because of the nature of the medium itself it's lower barrier to entry it is relatively speaking cheaper to make so you can actually push the envelope a little bit more um so it does allow for a wider diversity of story so for me it finding a home there for some of my stories and some of the stuff that i've been developing with uh, a writing partner like it's been it's been a really good outlet for that. Absolutely. And it seems too, you have such a varied background across mediums, across genres and everything. What do you feel is the connective tissue for you between your work? Well, I think the connective tissue comes from what I want to do. And it's a very like oddly, I don't know, self-centered way of looking at it. All stories are self-centered or self-indulgent in some way. <laughs> totally, totally. As an artist, you are kind of self-indulgent. Um, but I think it really comes down to where everything started for me, which is, oh, this is a thing that I like and it really inspired me. And I want to trigger the same emotional, the same feeling, the same passion in other people. Like, I want to recreate that and do that for other people. And it's been what drives every single narrative or project that I myself have developed. Everything that I choose to do stems from that. From like, I'm, I'm essentially, I'm, I'm a fanboy. So who are some of the, the storytellers or the artists uh, that have inspired you? I tend to not think about, let's say, my fandom or my inspirations in terms of people or creators as much as specific creations. And it's a weird quirk that I don't, I don't know how many people actually have this, but I assume it's widespread enough. I'll give an example. I have never ever managed to enjoy a full musical album of any kind. But it's kind of a weird game of statistics. I'm like, ah, this album is fantastic because there's three songs in it that I really like. And I don't know why, <laughs> but I'm very particular about the stuff that inspires me. So it really ends up being less about consistency with certain creators and more about certain pieces of media that really just pushed me. And there's a lot of those. The way I view art is that if you're kind of stuck in just trying to recreate the thing that originally inspired you and you're not exposed to new things, 
it's kind of cheap and you're never challenging yourself in any way and you're going to be left behind and you're going to always feel outdated like you're trying to kind of live your prime you're l bundying it so i really like always moving forward and getting ex exposed to new things when i went in to becoming a fan i started where a lot of 80s kids started from right like oh i'm a big teenage mutant ninja turtles fan and i'm a big spy I've always been a big spider-man fan like it was a lot of these very mainstream things later on in life you kind of get introduced to a lot of other things that are again very mainstream like uh my a lot of my passion for sci-fi came from things like farscape and star trek and star wars which are inherently very different from each other right but these were yeah. these drove me to create very specific kind of things over the years and still, I tend to revisit a lot of these franchises and what they meant to me or what they instilled in me. Anime and Japanese media has been a huge source of inspiration for me. And it's been kind of... I, I was one of the weird kids in the 90s that was into that. And especially in Israel, like, you're a real freak. But that did stick. And I think a lot of the things that really push me in terms of the creative emotions or creative visions that I want to do still come from that um so recent specific works um i'm a huge fan of like full metal alchemist i think it's one of the best both manga and animes i find myself drawing from it a lot um in a lot of different ways uh and i think eden frost is actually a very good general example of what i mean i i am always trying to kind of think back to the things that inspired me and try and Find a way to spark the same emotion in my work. So that one is a really big one. I'm a big gamer. So for a lot of my recent work, uh, my writing partner, Elliot Spurl, like he, he got me into Dark Souls. And my God, that was a rabbit hole. There's a lot of stuff that I kind of pick and choose from and find ways to infuse. It's all undertones. When I actually started writing a lot of my own work, I found that what helped me is really anchoring the stories and narratives and things that I am passionate about that aren't tied to pop culture. They're just tied to my own philosophy. Eden Frost is most definitely probably the best example of it uh, from why I chose to make it to begin with, because it was definitely a reaction to a lot of the things that were happening here in the last few years. You know, seeing Nazi flags yeah. on live yeah. television. I'm like, oh, you know, my my grandparents from both sides are Holocaust survivors. So I grew up with a very specific mentality that definitely sipped into how I manage everything in my life and how I view things. And that was a really big slap in the face of like, oh, these are the things that they kept on preaching that felt somewhat outdated or somewhat alarmist, you know, in the 21st century that you're like, hmm, this is more relevant than I would like it. And I have a lot of passion for history. So I like to examine things through historical lens, which could make me a very annoying person sometimes. Where people are like, this is the first time this happened. And I'm like, well, you know. But, but that, that fascination with history and caring about very specific values or statements that I want to make. Um, because as you can tell, I'm pretty outspoken about pretty much everything. I always try to anchor every story in a strong statement and it has to be something that I believe in and something that I want to convey to people without being preachy. And I think that's also one of my big goals with Eden Frost. I don't want to tell people 
how to think. I want to just show them something or show them my statements unraveling through the perspective of characters that are just figuring things out, which is also why they're so young and impressionable. We were talking about research, so obviously I have to like be a nerd. Um, so I'm a little bit curious because, you know, you mentioned the cyclical nature of everything. You know, there were the Groms in the 1600s, 1700s, 1800s, and then this takes place during the Russian Civil War and like 100,000 Jews were killed during this. And I'm a little bit curious, because of the cyclical nature, uh, what what prompted you to set it during this time specifically? Ah, uh, thank you so much for asking that question. Now you're going to make me nerd out. Um, so it's... <laughs> That's our goal. Yeah. So, so just to kind of like sharpen it even further, the story begins in 1917 and I want to, this is a bit of a spoiler alert, but you know, I'm going to essentially have it via multi-year narrative. Like there are going to be certain time skips at certain points. Um, and it's going to go all the way up until essentially when the war started fizzling out, like, um, 1921, 1922. So, but we're starting it quite literally in, the winter of 1917 where you know right after the october revolution volunteer army formed and the let's say the russian civil war officially started now one of the reasons that i picked that when i look at a lot of the things i was reacting to that kind of drove me to want to craft this specific narrative i tried to examine where we are today as a society and compare it to where in history have some of these elements existed like what's a better comparison and it's not world war ii world war ii is clean and it's refined and it's not as fragmented and right now in terms of even aspects of like how we handle information or misinformation in this case the fragmentation of society a lot of the sentiments that are kind of rising to the surface and why they're rising to the surface or even how they're used there are more things to learn about what happened during the Russian Civil War. The Russian Civil War, much like World War I, was absolute chaos. And the fascinating part about it that's very relevant today is what role Jews played in all of this. Um, and I think that's definitely worth a close examination because times of turmoil, like the Russian Civil War, are always when anti-Semitism all of a sudden seems to really, really get to shine. There is a reason for that. And it really forced me to think about why this specific brand of ethnic bias always manages to stay relevant. Um, and that was a rabbit hole, by the way. And, and looking at the <laughs> Russian Civil War brought a lot of clarity. I was kind of exposed to the, you know, they call it like the hidden pogroms. I was exposed to it through talks um, that Alyssa Bonpart, who's like, she's an academic and she's been, this this has been her passion. I actually talked to her a little bit when I started this project, just letting her know, like, I used your talks and lectures for so much of my research. During the Russian Civil War, what happened to a lot of the Jews was kind of a prototype that the Nazis were very good at studying from. This was a mass genocide that happened in stages and it was a different brand of genocide because it was a lot more medieval in nature it was a lot more brutal it was a lot more scattered like the war itself and most fascinatingly so it was done by both sides even the bolsheviks the red army who were supposedly associated with the jews and had prominent jewish people in leadership roles even their side ended up engaging in kind of uncontrollable 
burst of pogroms. And that tells you something about like, why? Why is this in everything that's happening right now? Why are people always reverting back to this mindset or to this very specific form of ethnic hatred? And I think what in the end of all of it, what really made sense to me as I was like doing all the research on what happened in this time period, it's the fact, and this is really the underlying statement behind Eden Frost, it's all about the fact that identity is a construct and nothing more. As important as it is, we have to, I feel like, humanity, we have to acknowledge the fact that the very concept of identity isn't inherent to our nature. It's an outcome of our nature, of circumstances, of where we are in time, of culture, or of a lot of different things. But no matter what it is, it is kind of a made-up concept that we enforce, right? And that's okay. And it has value, and there's reasons why it exists. But forgetting the fact that it is just a construct means that we, it's very easy to weaponize it very, very effectively. And that happens time and time again. And the reason it's so easy to weaponize it against Jewish people in particular is because, and I'm just going to ask this as a very weird question. If I ask you right now, what is a Jew? Describe a Jew to me. Yeah, I mean, it, it almost feels, I mean, this is me answering this your question like with basically with basically answering more questions but it just makes me think kind of piggybacking off that you know we talk a lot in this podcast about how jewish folklore is so interesting and sort of departs from what we think of i guess as secular western folklore is that in these stories jews are not only afraid of the monster itself right. but also being seen as the monster and, and in the same way this jewish identity that has so often been sort of created for us without our input is a similar sort of dark mythology. Um, and it's so much easier for people to scapegoat us, for people to pin all of their intangible fears that they can't fully explain on us than it is to look within themselves. That's, that's very true. And now I'm going to throw another layer at it, right? Let's say that you are in 1917 Ukraine, right? Or Galicia, or, or even in World War II, wherever you are that there is a rise in anti-Semitism. Can you tell me, if, if you're dealing with you yourself, you're non-religious, right? When people look at you, when people hear you, you don't come off as Jewish. You might just be standard Ukrainian. You consider yourself a citizen. You live in Kiev. Like, you know, you're like everybody else. If there is a program coming your way, to your neighborhood, to your area, how can someone distinguish between you and your other Ukrainian Christian neighbor? Well, and I think that sort of ties into it, right? If identity is something that's inherently internally generated, the moment it becomes an external generation is the moment it becomes weaponized. Even people who don't fully buy into it, there is a very protective mentality of like, wait, 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 the Nazis are coming for them and this is how they define Jewish. Well, I mean, I look the same, I sound the same, I speak the same language, I... I have black hair. Maybe they'll think I'm a Jew. I don't want that. So I'm going to help them out. I'm going to point to my neighbor and say, there they are. There's the Jews. Get them. That is a very effective defense mechanism. And it means that by weaponizing it, you're not just inciting hatred and anger and fear. You're enforcing tribalism in a way that's paranoid because you're making people turn on each other. And that motivates your general population to engage to buy into it for self-preservation. We definitely get that with Igor Melnik. 
he's the sole survivor, and he's immediately like, no, 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 I didn't do anything. I know this looks bad, but it wasn't me. It was the Jews. That's right. That's Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you picked up on that. There are multiple instances of that kind of coming back as a very, like, yeah, like, protective, right? It's always to deflect. And you probably also noticed these kids are very not obviously Jewish. They're secular, right? They came from a secular household. In the end, they view themselves as, you know, Ukrainian citizens. Like, hey, we're part of this nation. We're part of this village. We're part of this society. Like, the parents are aware of where they are in society and the limitations of it. Um, but the kids themselves are still pretty sheltered and naive to it. It becomes a an ongoing thing of, like, why are they after us? Like, what's the... where? Why are you accusing us for all of these things? I don't even know what you're talking about, right? I think one of the things that was very funny for me as an immigrant coming into the States is I came from Israel, where kind of the majority of people are Jewish. So um, there's nothing, it's not a subculture. It's not a minority. When you move into a society where you are the minority, people think of Jewish as American Jewish and very often like New York Jewish. And you guys met enough Israelis to know, man, that is not true. <laughs> Like, yeah. culturally, we are very different. People would constantly make references to things that would just baffle me up front that are really funny in retrospect. When I did my, my master's, like, this was my first year here in the States. I was in Minnesota, and a guy just came to me, and December was coming up, and he goes like, So, uh, meet. are you uh, planning on grabbing some Chinese food, like, on Christmas? And I just looked at him like, <laughs> what? And it's tied to something my mom told me when I first moved here. Uh, like, I was raised secular. Like, my family is not religious. And when, when I moved here, she said, you know, I, uh, I know that you're not really into, you know, like, the, the traditions and religion is not a big part of our life. But she's like, you're going to move into a place where no matter where you go, you will eventually be identified as Jewish. So, you know, be at least a proud one at that. <laughs> to me too as you're talking about the ways in which other people shape this Jewish identity for us the way we shape it for ourselves it does feel like the golem is sort of a perfect myth to mirror the Jewish experience in a way because it is and maybe this is why you chose it but it is this creature this monster specifically that has to be created by man and we breathe life into it and so often all these expectations that we put upon this creature ultimately backfire on us and do turn violent but I do also want to I know this is a bit of a departure but I am just so curious too about your relationship with folklore and specifically what drew you to this particular myth Ooh. You picked your questions well. We come way too prepared. So, uh, yeah, the, the golem, you're right. Like, it's so tied to the Jewish identity. And I feel like a big part of it really comes down to the narrative justification. The golem of Prague is like the most, let's say, mainstream narrative. And it's the one that people keep going back into. And the reason for the creation of the golem in that, in that story is defensive, right? It's, hey, it's mm -hmm. to defend us from pogroms and from hate crimes and for people who want to hurt us that's very very telling this is a 1600s story first of all that's what drew me into that narrative because it's stemming from the the thing that i want to talk about right it's tied to the jewish identity because of its roots in a defense mechanism to anti-semitism 
But like you said, it, it's a thing that usually backfires. Now, without going into too many spoilers, one of the things that I really wanted to do with Eden Frost is to reimagine the very folklore of the golem, the concepts that construct it and make it what it is. So I took that concept and where it came from and said, what if I really break it down and completely rebuild it in a way that serves what I am trying to say. You made a golem out of the golem myth. Yes. Yeah. One of the key elements of the golem as a creature is, the, and, and it's part of, you know, like it comes from the word golmi, right? Like in, in Hebrew, like it's raw. It's raw material. It's supposed to be a brainless creature. Yeah. An automaton, like you give it an order and you just destroy it. Like that's what it does. Can we have you for sound effects on all of our podcast episodes? <laughs> Honestly, that was that was the best Donald Duck impersonation I think I've heard in years. <laughs> so anyway, going back to the uh, golem, I wanted to actually give him an identity of its own. His relationship and also the way that mechanically he works is very different from every iteration of this creature seen to date. And it's one of the things that I'm very excited about because I think people won't expect it coming in. There is more than one version of the golem in this story, or more than one representation of him. And when looking at the variant cover from Mike Ruth, you'll actually see the two iterations that fit both Alex and Yuli when each of them essentially uses that power because it reflects their own personality or their own spirit. I treat the golem as an independent spirit, but is very much focused, and that's the, the connective tissue between him and these kids. He just wants to survive. And when he infuses himself into the story, it's always as a reaction to, you guys are my hosts. If the bloodline ends here, so do I. So it's a very, very different way of thinking about the golem that still fits in line with a lot of what brought this creature into being. And the way that it functions isn't independent either. And this is a spoiler, but, uh, you know, fine. I can say it here. It's gonna, it's, whoever reads the first arc will eventually run into this. The golem it acts more like a suit, meaning the kids are in it and they're operating it. They are essentially in a semi-dependent symbiotic relationship with it. And they're both tied to it in different ways. So it's Neon Genesis Evangelion. <laughs> I was going to say, I could see the anime coming through yeah, here. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So it's got those elements of both uh, a little bit of Attack on Titan, a little bit of Neon Genesis, a little bit of uh, Code Geass. Like it's got a little bit of everything to create this because it is an autonomous creature with a voice, with will, with fears. It creates a very interesting push-and-pull dynamic between um, these two kids and this creature and how they all view the situation. And it's also tied to kind of how I deal with the kids in general because their own philosophies are going to kind of rip them apart a little bit as the story moves along. Because their view of the world is very, very different. So the way that they also interact with the golem is really reflective of that. Like Alex is a lot more defensive and is a lot more tribal. And Yuli is a lot more of, she's a lot more independent. She's a lot more paranoid and she's a lot more aggressive. And it affects how the golem ends up behaving, manifesting itself. So that's kind of how I, I've taken a lot of elements from the original folklore and I just kind of broke them up to parts and put them together as something that I think is new and interesting and would really 
feed into what I'm trying to do with this story as a whole. Which again, is sort of the function of folklore itself, right? It is to address our fears, it is to address the current moment. So it's, it's very cool the way you're able to sort of adapt that to this particular place and time. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I'm, I'm, and I'm hoping that resonates with people because it is a different take. It's a little different. It's a little unexpected. I mean, it's got a lot of twists and turns. Because once again, a, a big part of the philosophy behind Eden Frost is I want the audience to figure things out as the kids figure them out, both in terms of what's happening around them in the historical landscape. As you saw in the first issue, I never say where we are. I never say when we are. Mm -hmm. And it's very intentional. Because a lot of it will end up coming out of conversations. Because I don't want people to, to have to do all this research that I did about the Russian Civil War and the landscape. Like, now you tell me. <laughs> <laughs> Stayed up until like three in the morning going like, okay, I think they mentioned Kiev and there's the two different armies. And like I had a map and like I was sending Jen way too many texts. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> I was like, is something wrong? Like I'm realizing as I go back through I'm not positive exactly where it is. Is this me? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. But hey, but thank you for doing all this research. Of course. Listen, you're on a podcast with two nerds. That's yeah. true. That's true. There's a scene in the first issue where, I don't know if you noticed this, like, you know, they run into the woods and they see another unit of soldiers that, you know, if you look very closely, you're like, oh, yeah, they're not volunteer army. They're Soviets, right? And that's a different faction. The kids don't know this. So the only comment that they end up referring to under their breath as they're running is just like, oh, their uniforms seemed a little bit different. Were these, because they're running away, they're like, oh, more soldiers. Like, it reads like the same thing. It was one of the mind-boggling things about uh, the Russian Civil War is both sides, the white and the red armies, kind of ended up using the same uniforms and same weapons and same tools. So they looked the same. So there were entire incidents documented of two, let's say, opposing groups, not knowing that they're opposing, looking at each other. Well, and that sort of goes back to like the, uh, what you were talking about with like different identities being internally or externally motivated. Exactly. Like if you can't tell the difference, why is there one? Bingo. That's one of the things that I want to keep going back to. If you're Jewish, by the end of this conflict, whether you wanted to or not, you have never felt more like the other. Something that occurred to me, and I don't know whether or not this is intentional, but I noticed throughout there's a lot of talk of heaven and hell, which I think is very interesting because most people don't necessarily think of hell as this particularly Jewish concept, right? I mean, we, you can go down that rabbit hole yeah. itself. A lot of that has to do with Jews wanting to assimilate and pushing aside the more mystical aspects of our beliefs, right? But I think, too, as you show in this world where literally everything is stacked against these kids, right? At yeah. this point, we know it was kind of protecting them, but they're running from the monster, they're running from their community, they're running from all these factions of soldiers, and the cold itself is sort of trying to kill them. So it just sort of occurs to me that it's a dark view, but maybe we don't need to think of hell as this far-off concept to deal with after we die, because for so much of our existence, it's sort of in our everyday life and we've had to just struggle to survive yeah no spot on this is a real upper <laughs> i know <laughs> sorry <laughs> i'm such a cheery person <laughs> it's a keen observation and you can tell it's intentional because it's actually referenced in the title i think i right. kick off the story by explaining why it's called eden frost because we kind of see yuli's thoughts and she kind of quotes the conversation 
with her mom and why she hates this place and it, we kind of end up wrapping it up with that as well but it also tells you something about the relationship between the Jewish let's say traditional religion and hell it, it does tell you something about the culture they're in because the fact that Yuli knows that reference or that term yes. tells you something about how she was raised like we can tell that they're not religious. That's another hint of it. They were raised secular. They view themselves as the same as their neighbors. So a lot of the things that are now being forced upon them, like you said, like it's an identity forced upon them, it creates a lot of confusion. They don't understand why. Why are they talking to us like we're supposed to know what this is? I've never signed up for any of this. So yeah, it's nice and validating to see you notice these little things. I, I can never tell. I am a an atheist but I love a lot of the lore and I love the concepts mm -hmm. that all of this and they have a lot of impact on our culture Bruno the artist that is partnering up with me on this title and he's just you've seen his work he's a freaking god like he yeah. has taken a lot of the references I've given and executed on such a high level but you'll see a lot of visual iconography as well that very deliberately takes inspiration from and references things I can already tell you when you're like hey this looks a little like yeah it that's exactly why <laughs> I also love, this obviously does not come through the children themselves, but when they're listening in on these other soldiers at the encampment, you reference some other Eastern European secular folklore. You talk about Baba Yaga and smog or smoke. Funny you mentioned the smog specifically. Where I took that from is literally my grandma. So she grew up in Galicia. Like she, she used to love this folk story that she grew up on. Kind of a very simple narrative of like, oh, you know, this dragon that, you know, lived. It's a, almost like a Loch Ness monster dragon that terrorized people in a small town in Poland. Traditional Polish folklore. We grew up with it, right? Because my grandma grew up with it. Despite being Jewish, this is not a Jewish thing. It is an mm -hmm. Eastern European myth. Uh, Baba Yaga, same thing. We've heard it multiple times. Usually when one of our grandparents is just trying to talk shit about someone. But <laughs> it's stuff you grow up hearing and you're like, what is that? And then when they explain to you, you're like, okay. <laughs> A house with chicken feet. Nothing weird about that. Nothing yeah. weird about that, man. Totally normal. <laughs> so yeah. So I, I deliberately had some of these references. Once again, because authenticity was very yes. important to me. But it was... It was definitely to give you the idea of, once again, these are kids who grew up on local myths and local culture, which is why this is so baffling to them that it's happening. This is also a bit of a departure, but just as you're talking so much about these children who are moving from place to place, the shifting identities of this part of the world, it just occurs to me too, you're from Israel, you moved here. Do you think too that... I don't know, maybe part of your inspiration for writing this story just came from the fact that you yourself are sort of a nomadic Jew, albeit under very different circumstances. <laughs> oh my god, you're right. I am a nomadic Jew. Israel just kicked you out because you liked anime. <laughs> there you go. It, the immigrant mentality it has a major influence on, I think, my philosophy of life, but also how me and my parents and my grandparents operated because my grandparents were immigrants as well, right? After World War II. They left Poland and Slovakia and immigrated to Israel without even knowing the language. We grew up in a household that brought in a lot of educational and cultural baggage. And, and this is putting aside, you know, the obvious trauma 
but there is definitely a very strong immigrant mentality. And yeah, I see myself in, in some of these characters, obviously. I, I write them in specific ways, different elements. I can tell you that personality-wise, Yuli is named after my mom, but her personality is very much inspired by my grandma, my mom's mom, who survived Auschwitz when she was like 14, but she had that kind of very fiery, very tough personality, very outspoken, very much like making a stand, know when to be like very caring, but also when to be very aggressive and unforgiving. And Alex is very much in terms of personality based more on my mom herself, which is a lot more warm, empathetic, always trying to avoid conflict, trying to calm things down, trying to rationalize a lot more social and tribal. And a lot of the mentality or the values or even how they operate in a situation, it's definitely tied to also how I operate because I, I absorbed a lot of the same values. With Jewish people, especially if you come from my kind of background, there is always this thing in the back of your head of like, anything that I get, I got to put aside and I got to save it and I got to put it in this and I got to play always like, you know, have a backup plan. You're always kind of in this mindset of like, I'm just prepping for the day the Germans as a metaphor, not the literal Germans, but the day the Germans come again. You don't want to be stuck with another, like, having to create gefilte fish because that's all you had available. <laughs> oh my god, can we all agree that gefilte fish is kind of awful? Oh, terrible. Thank you. Here's <laughs> the thing. For the most part, I agree, but my uncle does have a really good recipe. You know, I've heard that before, never never been sold on <laughs> Never been... <laughs> it might just be a comparative thing. Right, the bar is low, thing. actually. <laughs> I do want to go back really quickly because you were talking about the names, and I'm a little bit curious. Yuli and Alex's last name is Low. Is that any reference to Rabbi Yuda Loeb and Bezal? Yep. The Maharal. Definitely. Man, good on you. Yes. Which, as a reminder for our listeners, is credited with creating the Golem of Prague. That's right. That's right. So yes, I've definitely planted it there because, you know, um, one of the things that the kids will also like discuss or learn or have to investigate as they try to investigate what is the nature of this creature. Because even in issue one, like Yuli's aware that it exists, but it kind of missed the whole incident. So she probes Alex about it and he's being very defensive. But the idea of having that name is directly a reference because uh, as we will learn, and this is not a major spoiler, but this golem is tied to their family's bloodline and it has been for hundreds of years and it's been essentially quiet and dormant and unused and kind of devolved into myth it's the same idea of like you don't take it seriously it's like your grandfather's stories and your grandpa's grandfather's stories so they have this object of power that runs in their family but the golem is tied to their bloodline how that happens uh, i don't know i won't reference any of that yet but yes it was Definitely an intentional choice to give them that name because of that. That's some vindication for me right there. There you go. <laughs> See, we do our homework. We are nerds through and through. <laughs> well done. Well done. Uh, I do want to, this might be like a little bit more getting back to the, the comics as the medium, but I'm curious, the artist Bruno. Yeah. How much of a collaborative effort was designing the golem itself? Because it's such an interesting design because it's not just one substance. It's wood and snow and ice and rock and i'm just curious like what was the thought that went into that how much of that was collaboration all of that so the way i develop any property that i pitch around i actually come up with a lot of the designs and a lot of these concepts already ready-made even before i sell the property to a publisher 
So uh, Bruno is amazing at executing, and he's the guy driving all of the visuals of the comic itself. Uh, but he's using a lot of, uh, he's doing his own spin on it, but he's using existing designs. So he, some stuff he has to kind of like start from scratch because they were never designed, but in the original pitch deck, there was a baseline. I'm a 2D artist, but let me tell you, there is much better illustrators, character designers, like I was an animator. So like as far as like character design, BG previous, I can hire a million people that would do it better. Because I was looking for a very specific style. I hired at least I think like two, three artists to do different pieces for this pitch deck. And I gave them directions on how I want it to be constructed. So I usually make these very detailed art guides. And the golem's construct was all in there, right? I literally kind of said like, so one of them will be shaped as this form, one of them will shape, be shaped as this form, and they will be constructed. And this is part of the mechanism. When the golem forms in the story, they kind of summon the spirit's power and the suit construct itself around them. The way that it's constructed is that it's literally taking whatever elements are around them. In their particular case, very, very often that's going to be rocks, ice, snow, some branches. So, so that's why they look the way they look. As the series progresses and people realize that's what's going on, um, different settings will make the golem look a bunch of different ways. And in this first arc, in the first few issues, it already kind of happens. So you'll see that form in different ways. But that's that's why they're built the way they're built. And man, the, the scenes that he managed to illustrate based on this are just... We're doing a lot of color reviews for like issue three right now. And oh my god, I, I feel really lucky. He's just on a whole other level. Well, and he's really, really good at, you know, all of the like very close up on the faces, all of the expressions. Like reading the issue, one of the characters, Belov, like he has this Kubrick stare going on and like yep. instantly the most terrifying of all of them. Like he seems truly unhinged. Yes. So Bruno actually designed Belov. Victor had an initial design and then Bruno kind of took a very unique spin on that. Belov didn't have a design. I gave him, you know, references of like, okay, I want him to kind of look like this. This is his personality. This he really nails because you feel, you instantly know based on how he he talks and how he reacts to things and how he also interacts with Victor who is the higher ranking villain and probably the biggest villain of the series they have a very different vibe to them uh, going back to yeah. some you know like inspirations mm -hmm. and, and references to artists I am a pretty big Tarantino fan and one of the things that I really love is how he he can tell an entire story about someone's personality or project so much just through very benign dialogue you have the colonel and you have the lieutenant. There is a way they feel about each other and it's not... They don't necessarily see eye to eye. One is very ambitious and kind of sees this and the other one doesn't necessarily have respect. Uh, but Bruno has been amazing in just projecting all of this because he knows who they are already. He's so good at just understanding. He's like, oh, I get this kind of person. And then picking the right expressions and the right angles and the right poses to really just drive it home so that you look at the person and you're like, I get it. Oh my God, this is this kind of human being. Yeah, the specificity with which he draws the low children themselves and the, the terror in their eyes as they're recalling what happened and also the warmth between them, just the body language as they're, they're lying there in the snow together or that sweet moment where Yuli throws the snowball at her brother. I mean, there's just such detail and richness to the way they're drawn to and they feel so human, which just makes your heart break for them so much more. 
I am so glad you're saying this, because once again, you're like, you're, you're pilot tester. Very few people got their hands on it, so thank you. It's what you hope you manage to put through your work, and same with, like, Bruno. Like, he's putting so much love into this. And I can tell you, over every issue, it only gets better and better and crazier and crazier in terms of the amount of just dramatic flair he puts into the visuals. Um, so it's really wonderful to hear that it comes through. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm curious, like, I noticed that at one point, like, Alex is wearing a, a mezuzah pendant. And so I'm wondering, like, how much did you coordinate with him in terms of, like, accompanying Jewish iconography and accoutrement? Remember what I said earlier in this interview, that if you see something that is, like, you know, a visual identifier that looks like something, it's very, very intentional... That was one of the things I meant. <laughs> so yes, it was very intentional. I literally gave him references, like very direct visual references to what the original thing looks like and how I want this version to look like. And it's tied to the mythos of this specific version of the golem in particular. Because like you said, it looks like a mezuzah, but it also looks off. It's almost like an alien version of a mezuzah or something like that. And that is 100% by design. Thinking of thematically what a mezuzah like means, it's... it's it identifies a Jewish yeah. home. So in that case, if this is something that lives within Alex and Yuli, it's identifying his body as a home for this That's thing. That's right. That's exactly Guess who right. was an English major? <laughs> <laughs> and film studies major over here. So we are used to just analyzing every detail. Um, a mezuzah too is this protective shell that encases a prayer inside of it. Right. So in a very similar way that the golem, as you're conceiving of it is protecting these children and sort of becoming the shell around them so it's really beautiful and the scroll has always been a part of the uh golem mythos as well right yes. you, yeah so yeah all of it like once again it's like you pick an object because it's got all of these associations and layers and you're kind of appropriating it to your own goals and putting a twist on it i'm curious do you have a moment when you like suddenly realize that something is going to work really perfectly do you just sit there and laugh to yourself a little bit going like yes this is perfect you know it's <laughs> You you never really know. This is what you hope will happen. And sure, you have these moments, but I think like for me, I'm such a skeptic. Like a moment later, I'm like, but that's how I feel about it. So who knows? Like you can never predict how they're going to register, what they're going to notice, what they're not going to notice. So there's always that element of like, all right, I got to be very cognizant on making sure that no matter how subtle I want to be, I also have to be very clear yeah we're, i mean going back to this idea of this comic itself sort of being your goal of you've created it now you're unleashing it on onto the oh yeah well and you know jews have such a strong like we have such a strong track record in comics like honestly we created the superhero genre even before superman like the first comic book superhero was this character called the phantom who was made by a guy named lee falk who is a jew living in st louis <laughs> i like it was like we created him yeah yeah where are my stocks I'm curious, do you think there is a reason why the Golem myth or just something about Judaism in general lends itself to using comics as a means of discussing superheroes or superheroes as a means of discussing identity? That's an interesting question. I I don't know, but I definitely, I mean, in the history of comic books, a lot of the superhero comics were a reaction to World War II. A lot of the famous ones, right? Like Superman and like what anything that Jack Kirby and Stan Lee did later on, it was always tied to their Jewish identity in one way or another. 
Um, especially during the time that they were growing up where it could limit your job prospects, uh, which is something that isn't very often talked about today, that even in America, this would definitely limit what you could do with your life and what you could do with your career. The fact that they were able to pull it off, it might just be like, this is one of those mediums where there wasn't a lot of scrutiny, where it was okay to operate in, in the same way that, you know, the vaudeville, right? Like in the, yeah. how Jews made their way into entertainment. This was an opportunity that was available where a lot of opportunities weren't. And if you're going to talk about something and empowering your own identity or things that you care about, yeah, it's it, you're going to end up uh, projecting or infusing a lot of that into your work and into this medium, which you were allowed to operate in. Cool. Well, and I will also say I, we have been talking for about an hour at this point. <laughs> yes. um, so my, my brain is at this point <laughs> potato salad. Um, <laughs> I, so uh, there we go. My brain is gefilte fish. Don't you put that evil on me. <laughs> okay, so is there anything that we haven't asked you that you really want people to walk away from, you know, this interview, this comic, knowledge of your existence in this world? Is there anything that we haven't asked you yet that you want to address? I guess the, the main thing for me is that I really hope that people pick it up and hopefully enjoy it and hopefully stick with it because there has been a lot of love and a lot of passion put into this uh, series and it's really going places, I think. And I hope that resonates with people and I hope that they give it a chance. Anybody who listens and is going to be in New York Comic Con, definitely come to uh, the Mad Cave panel on Sunday or to meet up with me at uh, 3 p.m. on Friday the 13th. And, uh, you know, anybody that's interested in following my work in general, because Eden Frost is my debut, but I can also tell you I have three more original books and series coming out in the next few years. My website, www.amittischler.com. Uh, I have a newsletter called Mind Splatter that's kind of like an online magazine that is accessible through my website. And I post a lot on social media now because it's part of my promotional toolkit. Amit, thank you so much for joining us. It has been wonderful talking to you and nerding out uh, and slowly losing my voice. <laughs> and we really appreciate you taking the time. Anybody who is interested in pre-ordering those are available, as Amit said. Go visit him at Comic-Con. He's going to be there on Friday and Sunday. Also, probably Saturday, just strolling around. Uh, so just accost him in the street. And we will be back next week with more spooky shit. Guys, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Stay safe out there. Stay safe. Beware of golems and gefilte fish. And I'll catch you next time. <laughs> Hey everyone, thanks so much for listening to this episode of Call Your Monster. If you like what you heard and want to hear more, feel free to subscribe. If you have questions or have monsters that you want us to talk about, you can let us know in the Apple Podcast Rate and Review section or message us on Instagram at callyourmonsterpod, where we'll have a glossary of words we used this episode, as well as some almost funny memes. We'll see you next week.